from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. We turn to our scripture this morning, to Isaiah. It can be found on page 600 in your pew Bible. We hear today from the prophet. Hear now the word of God for you who are the people of God. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. second text is from the Gospel of Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 12 through 23. It can be found on page 3 if you'd like to follow along as I read aloud. The story we're hearing is immediately following Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and now the Spirit launches him into his public ministry. Now, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As they went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat, and they left their father, and they followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. 
Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a little congregational exercise to get your mind going, but before I invite you to participate, I want to be very clear about the expectations, okay? I am not going to ask you to raise your hand. Uh, nor am I going to ask you to share what you're thinking with someone near to you. There will be no mandatory sharing in this exercise, okay? That should free you up, loosen you up a little bit, right? As I ask you to participate. You got it? Okay. Here it is. What comes to mind when you hear the word evangelist. What comes to mind when you hear the word evangelist? Just take a second. Just have an association in your mind. Think about it. What do you think of when you think of the word evangelist? For some, perhaps you imagine a guy with a placard and a bullhorn standing outside of Mercedes-Benz Stadium, screaming through it, saying, unless you believe in Jesus, you're all going to burn. Or perhaps you're thinking of someone coming to your door with pamphlets or tracts, coming to your door with a wide smile and a well-rehearsed speech. Perhaps you're thinking of someone in particular. Perhaps you're thinking of Billy Graham or some great evangelist of the, of the 20th century. Or maybe you're thinking with fondness about an itinerant preacher that always would come to your town once a year and preach that sermon that you would have never forgotten. Or perhaps you have a, a fond memory of a, of a sawdust tent kind of revival that used to come to your small town every summer and you remember the preacher there. Perhaps you're thinking of that so-called religious, political voting block called evangelicals, one that you may or may not affiliate with. Regardless, I would lay a wager that 99% of us, when asked what we think of when we hear the word evangelist, I would bet that 99% of us did not think of ourselves. I suspect that what came to mind was, was not our own person, was not our own identity, right? I assume that's true. At best, right, at best we associate the word evangelist with something we're not, and at worst we associate the word with something we never want to be. So I want you to hold on to that association this morning. I just want you to hold that with an open hand 
as we turn our attention to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus, as I said, has just come out of the wilderness with his temptation, with the evil one. He heads to Galilee, and Matthew tells us that he starts teaching, and he starts curing, and he starts healing, and he starts evangelizing. He starts proclaiming. He starts preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in your midst And then he sees two brothers, fishermen, casting their nets into the sea. And Jesus calls them to follow him. And then he says, from now on, I will make you fish for people. I mean, you you read between the lines what that means, right? I mean, Jesus is asking these men to follow him so that they would become evangelists. So that they would hit the road with Jesus and preach and proclaim the good news, right? This makes sense because this is the Jesus that we're introduced to in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. He says that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, preaching the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Now, the Greek word that we... Uh, translate as good news is the word evangelion. It's a Greek word that that gets translated in in multiple ways. It's where we get the word good news, the phrase good news. It's where we get the word gospel. It's where we get the word evangelist. It's where the word evangelical comes from. And in the New Testament, that Greek word, a form of it, appears 133 times. It appears 133 times. If you were here last week, if you've heard me preach before, sometimes I say when you see something that's repetitive in the Scripture, pay attention because it's trying to say something. It's trying to form something in us. 133 times this word or a form of it show up in the New Testament. Simply put, baseline definition, an evangelist is someone who brings good news. That's an evangelist. It's somebody who brings good news. And if we're honest, as we're thinking about that little opening exercise, if we're honest, we're okay, right, with James and John. We're okay with Simon and Andrew becoming evangelists, right? I mean, that's that's sort of the deal. Being part of Jesus's original crew, that's the deal, right? We understand that, that these disciples would be evangelists, that they would hit the road, that they would be ones who proclaim good news. And we certainly understand that Jesus is evangelist. We don't bat an eye when we read words like repent for the kingdom of God is at hand when they're attributed to Jesus. We just sort of say, yeah, that's just the way Jesus rolls. He's an evangelist. But we do, I think, have a hard time imagining ourselves out there in the world fishing for people. Let alone, right, having even the the simplest, most mundane conversations about our faith or what it is we believe or even something generically religious, how hard that is to actually converse, to talk about outside of of these walls. Jonathan Merritt is one of our previous TheoEd talk speakers. He gave a great talk a few months ago. He's a prolific writer and author, writes a lot for the New York Times, and and he did some research a few years ago with the Barna Research Group, where they did a national survey trying to figure out why people in our time in the United States are so reluctant to have conversations about faith. 
Why are they so reluctant to talk about their deep-held religious convictions? Why are they so reluctant to talk about their spirituality? And Merritt found some interesting research, and here's just a few highlights of it. 28% of the people surveyed believe that these types of religious conversation create tension or arguments. So we just avoid them. 17% avoid them because religion has been so politicized. 7% don't want to appear religious. 6% simply do not want to sound weird. That's a real answer, 7% of the people. Don't want to sound weird. And 5% don't want to be seen as an extremist. So friends, here's the material that we're working with this morning. Here's what we have in our hands. This is the clay that we're molding for our time together, right? First, most of us disassociate ourselves from the role, the title, the work of an evangelist, okay? Second, most of us have been personally or socially conditioned to quarantine our faith. We've been conditioned to boundary our faith in the public square, that it's only appropriate to talk about on Saturdays, on Sundays, on Fridays. But in the public square, it's not appropriate to talk about. And then third, right, we dive into a scripture like this one from Matthew 4. We encounter the disciples who are called to fish for people. We also recognize that the arc of Matthew's story is inviting people to understand what it means to actually follow Jesus. And we have this sneaky suspicion that sharing the good news is actually part of the deal. It's not just for Jesus. It's not just for these four fishermen but it's actually also for us. That we have this sneaky suspicion that that being a herald of good news is part of what it means to be a Christian. Right, just as an aside, that suspicion is uh, confirmed by our church's constitution, right? In just about a half an hour or so, we're gonna have another on-ramp. We're gonna have a new members, rather, onboarding process. About 30 people are coming to that uh, that on-ramp, to that session. And when I walk through what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to be a member from our Constitution, from the Book of Order in the Presbyterian Church, the very first line says that a faithful follower of Christ will proclaim the good news in word and in deed. Now, Presbyterians love the second part of that. We love the deed part. We love to to that famous quote by St. Francis, or at least attributed to him, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Friends, don't think that your life leaves it unnecessary to use words. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't think that our lives, our deeds, fully embody the gospel. They only would do so by grace. Sometimes we need words. So how do we square all this? How, how, do we, how do we work with this material? How do we make something out of it? How does the call to proclaim the good news actually intersect our preconceived notions about what evangelism or what it means to be an evangelist are all about? And, and how does it intersect all the reasons that we can come up with right now of why we don't or why we can't share about the hope that is within us. So I think we need a little bit of a reset here. I think we have to get back to some basics. 
And I think we have to explain a little bit about what we mean when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the good news. What is it we're actually talking about here? Back in college, uh, when I was making my journey away from Catholicism, but before I landed uh, with a spiritual home in the Presbyterian church, I was worshiping and I was a volunteer youth leader at one of these mega non-denominational churches. Uh, and we went to this big youth rally. We talk, took a bunch of youth high school students there. And the speaker got up on the second night, and that's the night that he's going to deliver his gospel talk. They were prepping all the leaders. And I wasn't quite sure what they were meaning when they were prepping us as leaders. This whole gospel talk was, was new to me. I mean, I was Catholic, right? Um, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. This, this gospel talk was going was gonna to bring the core message of Jesus to these, to these children, these, these youth. So the speaker gets up, and, and, I'm, and I'm, not, uh, I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly what the speaker said. The speaker said to them at one point in the talk, Jesus loves you, but his father is very, very angry with you. And unless you believe in Jesus, his father's anger will punish you for all eternity. Right? Even in those infant years of my, of my Christian journey, even in those years of discovery, this version of the gospel seemed way, way off. I mean, the gospel is not a transaction. The gospel is not coercion. The gospel is not rooted in fear, shame, or anger. What is more, the gospel is not advice as to how to get saved. It's not counsel on how to be a nicer person. It's not wisdom on how to be religious. It's not advice on how to possess a proper moral code of conduct. It's not guidance to avoid pain and suffering or to live your best life now. And it's certainly not a definitive declaration on what political party God supports. That is not the gospel. So what is the gospel? What is at the heart of the story that rallies us even here this morning? First and foremost, the gospel is good news for all people. If it's not good news for all people, friends, it is not the gospel. If it's not good news for everybody, it's not the gospel. I preached this at 8 a.m. and I, I had somebody, uh, somebody cry out, say, are you sure? Literally, that happened at the 8 o'clock service. Are you sure? So I had to go off my notes, Rob. I had to go off my notes, and I had to recall that text that we just came through during Advent season when we heard the, the angel appear to Mary, do not be afraid. I bring you great joys of good news for all people. And then he said, all right. <laughs> for all people. If Jesus Christ is not for all people and with all people, it's not the gospel. Second, as one minister put it, and I love this turn of phrase, he says, the gospel is good news, not good advice. It's good news, not good advice. He says this, advice is counsel about something to do, and it hasn't happened yet. You can take my advice, and you can actually go do it. But news is a report about something that has happened. You can't do anything about it. It's been done. 
And all you can do is respond. Friends, the gospel is something that has happened. And the gospel is something that is happening even now in our midst. It cannot be tamed because God cannot be tamed. And the gospel, the good news to be declared is this, that the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of life and breath itself, the creator of everything that's ever been and ever will be is for us, is with us in Jesus Christ. And by his life, death, and resurrection, God did something and is doing something in human history to establish and vindicate a way of being human and a way of being in relationship with God a way of being in relationship with our neighbor, a way of being in relationship with ourselves and our inner life that is completely and totally rooted in love. These relationships are rooted in love. They're not rooted in fear. These relationships are are rooted in grace, not works. They're rooted in peace, not violence. They're rooted in forgiveness, not guilt or shame. They're rooted in freedom, not oppression. They're rooted in generosity, not greed. What God has done is good news for everybody. And this news needs to be shared. So to be an evangelist, really, is not to be a sage peddling good advice. It's about being a herald that shares good news. To be an evangelist is not to be a a coercive, self-righteous brute, but a joy-filled and hope-filled storyteller of what God has done to change your life and it changed the world. To be an evangelist is not to be right and everybody else is wrong. To be an evangelist means to be one beggar telling another beggar where to get some food. The story we tell, of course, is not naive or ignorant to the world's hunger, right? It's not ignorant to human need. It's not ignorant to the darkness that lurks in every corner of our lives and in the life of the world. The text that Jamie read for us this morning, Isaiah, is familiar. We hear it in Advent. We hear it again this week. And it's all about the light breaking into the darkness. And every time I've read that text, and Jamie did it the same way, in a brilliant way, there's a proclamation to be told, right? There's there's something assertive, something strong about that text. A light shines in the darkness. And yet, I think it's safe to say that during the time of Isaiah, when Isaiah was writing, I wonder if he was writing on papyrus with tear stains on the sheet because he was still living in darkness. It was still a time of great darkness and great trial and tribulation. And I wonder if we ever would read this text as if we're crying through it, feeling the pain of proclaiming the good news in a world full of darkness. Tom Brown uh, is a man who joined our church a few years ago. And and for many, many years, Tom uh, struggled with depression and acute mental illness. And when he came to First Presbyterian Church, he really couldn't hold a job for more than a few weeks, and he vacillated between being housed and living out of his storage unit. He got connected to the church, eventually went through a new members class and joined. And I remember him at the 8 o'clock service a few times, sitting next to our son Luke, who's now a middle school student, but then he was in his elementary years. And I remember Tom's so distinctly opening up the hymnal and and, and turning uh, to the page where the hymn was, showing Luke where it was as worship began. And Tom was always friendly to him and 
And Luke remembered that. And on one occasion, Tom spoke to me and he, and he talked about his gratitude for the church and, and he talked about how he now had a steady job and how he was getting more involved in the congregation. He talked about how he had an apartment and, and how light was, was breaking in, finally. And he talked about how he was coming to believe that the good news really did include him. That for so many years he thought it didn't. That God was for him, that God was with him. And so we got to know Tom pretty well, and we celebrated his embrace of the gospel. And it really did look as if the darkness was lifting. But then one of our staff members was having a, a hard time getting a hold of him. And then we found out that he hadn't shown up for work. We also realized that he hadn't been to church that week. And then devastating news followed. We heard that Tom died by suicide. And for our staff, I can tell you, and for the few church members who, who got to know him, that loss landed for us like an impossible weight. I mean, we deal with transitions in life all the time. We deal with death and, and we deal with life. And, and yet this was different. Something, something heavy came upon us because just when we thought the light was, was winning, just when we thought light was overcoming the darkness, it just all of a sudden in a flash went dim. And as we gathered in our chapel for his memorial service that included those staff members, included a few church members and some larger community members who, who knew him from his time out on the street, the sense of defeat and hopelessness was palpable. And friends, in a moment like that one, it's really hard to be a herald. It's hard to be like Isaiah and talk about light shining in darkness when darkness is all around. In that space, it's hard to tell the good news for all people. But friends, in that chapel, in that memorial service on that day, that's exactly what we did. That's what we did. We had to. We, we, we had to. We had to declare that death is not the final word. We had to declare that nothing could separate God's love from Tom. We had to declare that the albatross of mental illness was so great, even as we declared that Tom was finally free from it. And through the tears and through the heartache, we proclaimed the gospel. We were heralds of good news even in the darkest of hours. Friends, that's our work. That's the work of the church. Because the world is like that chapel. And you know it to be so. You, you know there's darkness. There, there's darkness in people's lives. There's, there's darkness in our city. There's darkness in... And throughout this planet, and, and you know people right now, I mean, God's going to bring to mind somebody right now that you know who's in desperate need of good news. So don't hold back. Even in the darkness, tell the story. Even when the wait is impossible, tell the story. Don't hold back. Go and proclaim. Tell the story. Be a herald of the gospel. I'd even dare you to be an evangelist. Amen.